Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And here in D.C., a lot of things set us apart, right? We're a federal district, first of all, not a state, so, so that's one. But we were also recently rated the most walkable city in the United States. We've consistently been named the most literate city. And as you may or may not know, on a per capita basis, we have more spies working in and around the Beltway than anywhere else in the world. Yep, nearly half of the U.S. intelligence community works in Washington, not to mention several thousand foreign intelligence officers. And that's a whole lot of undercover stuff, a whole lot of secrets. And those secrets are the inspiration for this week's show. We're not going to be embarking on any major undercover governmental investigations, but we will be exploring the hidden and the hush-hush, the intimate and the exclusive, with a show we're calling Behind Closed Doors. We'll hear why a certain Library of Congress collection was once under lock and key. Given that we're a federal agency and that we report to Congress, there may have been an effort to keep certain kinds of materials not so immediately public. And we'll attend a dinner party where conversation is off the record and very close to the chest. This space really creates an opportunity to say, you know, we remember these people. We love them. Plus, we'll meet a guy who once rubbed elbows with the rich and powerful as a White House butler. You know, Johnny Carson was there and Ed McMahon and Bob Hope and Frank Sinatra and Jimmy Stewart and Wayne Newton. And I mean, it was just an incredible array. But we'll start today's show two blocks east of the Capitol building at the Folger Shakespeare Library. Thanks to its founders, Henry and Emily Folger, the library holds the world's largest collection of Shakespeare stuff, along with other rare books, manuscripts, and artwork from the Renaissance period. And as director Michael Whitmore will tell you, many a scholar comes to the library to access this bounty. We establish the fact that you have a research purpose and you can get a reader's card and work in our collection. In other words, in the majestic reading room with its regal portraits of Henry and Emily mounted on the oak-paneled walls. But if you're lucky, or if you're a public radio host who won't take no for an answer, there's another way you can experience the Folger Shakespeare Library's collection, and it begins in the reading room. People come from dozens of countries to work in this room, to get our rare material, to look at it, to commune with it, and they do it in silence. So let's have a quiet walk across the uh, reading room. Okay, I promise. Okay, good. Now we're we're using our indoor voices now. After getting a spot... Oh, sorry. After getting a special set of keys from the information desk... We're going to pick up the keys. You pass through a door to send two flights of stairs. Here's the fire door. Okay. We open the fire door. And you enter what Michael Whitmore calls... The Get Smart Moment on the Folger Tour. Basically a room with a domed ceiling and an enormous steel bank vault with a massive outer door. It takes two people to shut this vault. And a heavy inner gate. This is the second of the steel doors. That shuts with a clang. After that, you board an elevator and head even deeper underground until... And here we are. You arrive at the inner sanctum. This is a city block's worth of vault space for rare material. Indeed, the Folger vault contains so many rows of densely stacked shelves that you can start to see parallel lines converge like in a classical perspective painting. The humidity is controlled somewhere between 45 and 55 percent and the temperature is set on the chillier side. We both could probably have special 
coats to be down here in the vault. Folger-issued parkas. Folger-issued parkas. <laughs> Michael Whitmore and I browse a number of items in the vault, including a leather-bound pocket-sized notebook in which Lord Byron penned his favorite Shakespeare lines in elegant, flowing script. We could just try and read a little bit here. For it so falls out that what we have, we prize something to the worth while we enjoy it. But being lacked and lost, why then we rack the value? And if I were a better Shakespearean, I would know from memory what that missing word is. Then there's the palm-sized book Whitmore puts in my palm, Walt Whitman's personal copy of Shakespeare's poems. It represents the deep connection between the English Renaissance lyric tradition and American lyric poetry. And this is his go-to copy of Shakespeare. I can't believe you just let me hold that. (laughs) My mind is blown. Which brings us to another item. This is the first folio published in 1623. Seven years after Shakespeare died, it's believed 232 copies of the first folio exist. The Folger owns 82 of them. This book is probably the most important single source that we have for Shakespeare's plays. Half of his plays appear only in this book like The Tempest, The Winter's Tale, Julius Caesar. So this particular folio, this one has 80-some brothers and sisters here. It does. That's a nice way of saying it. These books were all printed in one place in London, and then they went all over the world, and Mr. and Mrs. Folger were collecting them, and they brought them back together in one place. So we're very fortunate to have them here in Washington and to be able to make them available to researchers. And they're very excited to take that even further in 2016 to commemorate the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. We have 82 copies of the first folio, and we've identified 18 copies that are complete and ready to travel. We would like people in all 50 states and three territories to get a chance to see this book in person. So the Folger is encouraging libraries, museums, historical societies, and other venues to apply to host a first folio for four weeks. The deadline is September 5th. So you've got some, some serious criteria because everyone's going to apply for this. How do you choose? Well, first we want them to be safe. So we'll want to know about the space where the book will be presented. The Folger will provide insurance and display cases, but venues must have professional guards present and monitor the book's environment in terms of temperature, humidity, and light. You know, you could think of these books as kind of like a box of candles, okay? Every time you use the book, you take a small portion of its lifetime away. And it's like lighting a candle for 20 seconds and blowing it out. But if we never light these candles, Whitmore says... That would be wrong. We need to understand what what it was really like and what these books actually say and feel like. Because the thing is, Shakespeare isn't just for private researchers or prosperous collectors, like the billionaire who, in 2001, nabbed a first folio for $6.1 million. So much of the way in which we think and speak as Americans was influenced by this book. And so we want people to really get that excitement of saying, wow, that's a first folio, and it's in my community, and I can see it. And what's more, feel invested in it, take ownership of it even, which in a way brings us back to that quote from Lord Byron's notebook. For it so falls out that what we have, we prize something to the worth I actually looked it up after leaving the vault, and it's from one of the friars' speeches from Much Ado About Nothing. 
For it so falls out that what we have we prize not to the worth whiles we enjoy it, but being lacked and lost, why then we rack the value. Then we find the virtue that possession would not show us whiles it was ours. In other words, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. But if the Folger Shakespeare Library has its way, that'll never be the case. Instead, the whole world will have access to the bard and keep cherishing the bard for generations to come. So just across the street from the Folger and its underground vault, you'll find another treasure trove, one that holds an even bigger assemblage of research materials, though in this case, it's of a slightly different color. Lauren Ober has more. It is the answer to every voyeur's secret dream. This quiet corridor behind the locked wire mesh door known as the cage, where three large file cabinets are crammed full of such tantalizing titles as hot girls, cleavage, and black nylons. It is the Delta Collection, and it is available upon request to any member of the public who has the nerve to walk into the Library of Congress and ask for it. (gasps) The Library of Congress? I don't know the existence of either that cage or the file cabinet, so I'm not quite sure what may have happened to those materials. That's Mark Demunation, the chief of the Rare Book and Special Collections Division at the Library of Congress. And those two passages at the beginning of the story, they're from a 1973 newspaper article titled, Library of Congress Has Everything, Even Pornography. The Delta Collection referenced in the story was the library's compilation of books, magazines, photos, and other materials that were thought to be too titillating for the public eye. Years ago, segregating supposedly saucy materials was common. Many universities, public libraries, even European institutions have similar collections. The National Library of France's erotica section, called L'Enfer, or hell, was kept out of public view until just a few years ago. It's either the law cabinet or cabinet X or the Delta collection. Whatever it is, they were gatherings of materials that were thought to be a little too provocative to be on the general stacks, especially if you had open stacks. Today, there is no quiet corridor, no file cabinets, no cage. The materials that made up the collection were long ago dispersed into the library's general holdings as Americans became less prudish. The very fact that they were separated tells us a lot about the mores of a bygone era. What was left when everything was dispersed then is this sort of interesting slice of attitudes towards sexuality at a certain period of time, almost like a time capsule. And that's what's come to rare books. There's not a lot of really hardcore kinds of materials here. It's, it's, it's much more innocent. The library still maintains bound versions of spicy periodicals like Playboy, Penthouse, and the vaguely gay After Dark. There are also bodice-ripping romance novels, adult joke books, and other texts so benign that one would look askance at them today. On a recent weekday, Mark Demunation wheels a small cart into the Lessing J. Rosenwald reading room, On the card are nine books of various size and vintage. They were part of the Delta Collection and until the mid-1960s had been kept under lock and key. Demunation pulls a book from the cart. This is the first 
full public publication on birth control and its use and misuse by Dorothy Dunbar Bromley right after the Sanger report. That's Margaret Sanger, the early birth control advocate. Um, and was immediately put into the Delta collection because it dealt with women's sexuality, which I will say tends to be much more guarded by the Delta collection than, say, the behavior of males. And so it was probably seen as period to be able to read about various approaches to birth control. And so the entire work was set aside. Other authors whose works got stashed in the Delta collection include Simone de Beauvoir, Havelock Ellis, and Alfred Kinsey, the biologist best known for his hot little reports on human sexual behavior. One imagines that it's it's the much more illicit material that would be set aside. But you can see that in the 50s, there was a very strong filter of what would be appropriate for public shelving. Diminution opens another bookmark with a triangle, the Greek symbol for the letter D, or delta, used to identify books in the collection. This little volume was printed in 1845 and could easily fit in your pocket. It's called The History and Philosophy of Courtesanism, as connected with morals and legislation by an ex-alderman. And it has an opening line, which pretty much tells you everything you need to know. The following pages are commended to the candid perusal of clergymen, philanthropists, legislators, magistrates, and all persons who are willing to look upon society as it is and take the readiest means of making it better. And then what follows is tale after tale after tale of courtesans. <laughs> it's so racy. I'm, it's, this is so steamy right now. I'm just really uh, bothered. It's, it's a 19th century approach, so to us it's incredibly innocent and, and naive. Today it might seem silly to quarantine certain books and materials just because they seem a bit scandalous especially since each text offers little revelations about race, gender, sexuality, and all their various intersections. They're not just oddities. They are, in fact, the results of human expression or the description of human behavior and are as legitimate as the ones that describe the majority culture. In fact, you can't have one without the other. And the fact that they're blended within my collections means that we take this quite seriously. We're talking about the fabric of a diverse culture in the 20th century. And sometimes that diverse culture isn't just stories about cleavage and black nylons. I'm Lauren Ober. After the break. When it's really packed, we can squeeze about 55 in, and that makes me a little nervous. But we've done it, and we've had a good time with it, and we've never had any issues. Why so many DC musicians are bringing down the house and performing inside it. That and more is just ahead as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we are going behind closed doors. We've already spent time at the Folger Shakespeare Library's underground vault and heard about the risque writings across the street 
at the Library of Congress's Delta Collection. And in just a bit, we'll go behind the closed door of what may be the nation's most tightly secured house. Speaking of which, houses and homes are at the heart of this next story. Well, houses and homes and music. In our region today, you can check out more and more live music, not in an arena or at a bar, but as Jared Walker tells us, in somebody's living room. I'm at the home of Sully and Patsy Stevens in a leafy suburban neighborhood in Columbia, Maryland. Joining me are 25 people, mostly in their 50s and 60s, listening intently to a performance from veteran bluegrass musicians Eddie and Martha Agcock and Tom Gray. Is that your living room? The venue is our living room, our our TV room. We move all the furniture out and put all the chairs in. A few years ago, the Stevens went from being concert goers to concert producers when they saw some of their favorite musicians struggling to find small and mid-sized venues in the region. We found ourselves just in an area that seemed to work for the traveling musicians to stop in, play a few gigs, and move on. We're not a big venue, but we afford them the opportunity to pay their gas money and food for a day and a half, I guess. What's the personal payoff from doing this? Well, we just love the music. And to have uh, the performers in our living room, and it's an intimate setting, and you meet them, you talk to them, and, uh, you know, they're up close and personal. I think it's just uh, cozy. House concerts aren't a new phenomenon in the metro area, but the home show movement is experiencing a bit of a renaissance of late. In the District of Columbia alone, there are an estimated 35 active venues. With this surge, several grassroots organizations have popped up to help promote shows and assist venues. Nick Dupre co-founded the website Homestage DC. The only goal is to nurture and sustain the house show scene. And we do that in a bunch of ways. One is calendar, just letting people know. Because one of the things we found is that if you're not kind of in the know, and I wasn't for a long time, you don't know when these things are. And for a long time, we were also just helping people host in whatever capacity that we could, sort of guerrilla house show hosting. You need a PA or you don't know any local bands or you don't know how to promote or you don't know how to rockproof your house and you've never done this before. We can help with all those things. Dupre and I are in Petworth at a venue called The Paper House, a two-story row house on a quiet side street. We're there for a show featuring two indie rock bands, locals The Sea Life and a touring band from Atlanta called Dog Bite. Although both groups regularly play in traditional rock clubs, Dupre says house venues are still an attractive option. The modest pay they receive from donations tonight is helpful, but the Paper House offers these bands something intangible. It offers an opportunity to take risks creatively that I'm not sure would be tolerated or as accepted in traditional venues. Beyond the creative freedom, is there also an aesthetic difference between playing in a house? Absolutely. It's more of a wall of noise concept than you might be used to. Typically in a house like here, the paper house, the drums dominate. You have to sort of either tell the drummer to, to be more quiet or you have to match his noise with whatever you're doing. But yeah, it's, it comes with its own unique challenges as a musician and it offers its own listening experience. Alex Tebel of books and produces the shows at the Paper House. He says house venues are now ground zero for local music. 
I think you want to see what's going on in DC music, you should be going to house shows. And what was once a small, underground, and sometimes invitation-only scene has blossomed into an open and diverse collection of venues. It's more accessible now, and I think that's something that's really important. Literally any kind of music is welcome, any kind of person is welcome. The crowd tonight consists of about 25 people. They're mostly 20-somethings that wouldn't look out of place at a big rock club like the Black Cat or the 930 Club. On the surface, these people have very little in common with the crowd at Sully's place in Columbia. But Tebeliff says there's a subtle but important similarity. I think people come here more for the music than for partying, which is something that uh, really is what creates the atmosphere that I appreciate and why I keep doing it. Back in Columbia, Maryland, I tell Sully Stevens about his young counterparts in Petworth. Does that surprise you? I think there are a lot of people out there who would just like to come and listen and and maybe who just want an opportunity to be in an informal setting. You know, I, I don't know much about indie rock at all, us old fogies, you know, but it doesn't surprise me that there are other people doing the same thing. I, I just think we want to support the live music. So if you want to see the next big thing in D.C. music, you may not have to travel very far. In fact, there could be a venue right next door. I'm Jared Walker. Our next story takes us out of the house and into a place that many commuters and travelers know quite well. Or they may think they know quite well anyway. Turns out that if you pause and take a closer look at Union Station, you'll find all sorts of hidden history and architectural gems. Lindsay Sperber took a tour of some of these lesser-known corners of D.C.'s iconic train terminal and brings us the story. I'm standing in a cold room with dim light in a part of Union Station few people ever visit. With me are Beverly Swain Stanley and Tom Whitaker of the Union Station Redevelopment Corporation. We're about to descend into a perfectly cut square in the floor. So you get your hands on it first before you move your feet over that way. We carefully brace our hands on a ladder and climb down to reach the mezzanine level of Union Station's main hall. We're standing up behind six legionnaire statues made of plaster. Forty-six sculptures of Roman legionaries or soldiers line the main hall, standing tall at eight feet and each with a unique design. They look down from the station arches on the commuters rushing about below. Collectively, they represent the 46 states that made up the United States in 1906 when the station was built. I think there's about six or eight different types, and they just interchange the parts and pieces. And uh, they're all symmetrical, too, if you look at across the station, at one end of the station. They'll have two identical ones matched up as you go away from the center. The legionaries are among some of the station's original artifacts, dating back to its opening more than 100 years ago. After checking them out for a bit, we climb back up the ladder and head down to the main floor to a room historically reserved for the most powerful person in Washington. This is the presidential suite. From 1908 to 1950, Union Station's presidential suite allowed the nation's commander-in-chief to wait for his train in a privately secure location. Obviously, as you can see, very nicely decorated. Very special lights and lamps. You see the presidential seal here at one end of the room. Uh, You know, beautifully uh, carpeted, brocaded decorations. For several decades, the presidential suite served as a restaurant, and there's speculation it will reopen soon to the public. 
We exit the presidential suite to check out some elements of Union Station that aren't exactly hidden, but which many visitors miss as they rush to catch their trains. There are 28 different ceiling structures in Union Station. When you walk from room to room, um, look up because you'll see almost every time a different structure. Ceilings are decorative. Um, you know, whether there's a, a gold leaf or, you know, some other design in the ceilings. And while you're gazing upward, you might notice scaffolding and a large black net 90 feet above you. They're part of a two-year construction project designed to restore Union Station to its original magnificence. We're doing restoration that's visible as well as restoration that isn't visible to people who are in the station. One of the things that we are attempting to do now is replace all of the gold in the ceiling and to use uh, the same high quality of gold which was used originally and we expect the gold to last uh, 75 to 100 years. Union Station is the busiest stop in the metro system as well as a bustling hub for intercity train service. So this restoration isn't an easy process. It's a very busy place and that's challenging because we're trying to do a restoration. At the same time we're trying to continue to serve the many people who pass through the station each day for many purposes. Getting the station ready for the next generation includes developing a chronology of all the different changes that have taken place over the past 108 years. Swain Stanley says she's collected more than 8,000 documents as a part of that process. As we're doing a historic preservation plan for the station, uh, it's very exciting. We're finding a lot of new information about the history of the station, which makes it even more fascinating than it was before. They've also come across some interesting artifacts from the earlier eras in the station's history. We're finding out interesting things behind the scenes. So we have found, um, you know, old, old uh, paint cans and other artifacts like that, jars, as we're doing the work behind the main ceiling. And so what we are doing is collecting those and putting a very small museum-like display in the East Hall. That display is not behind closed doors. And Swain Stanley says the restoration team will be adding to it. They also plan to launch an app next month about the restoration and the artifacts they've uncovered so that this and future generations can enjoy the full history and beauty of Union Station. I'm Lindsay Sperber. Want to see those Roman legionaries up close and personal? Or take a virtual stroll through the presidential suite? We have a video from Lindsay's tour on our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute, the inside scoop on everyday life in the White House. So there I was, you know, sitting in the East Room of the White House listening to two of the great entertainers of their era uh, and getting paid for it on top of it. It's coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we've been exploring the more private side of Washington with a show we're calling Behind Closed Doors. And now we'll go behind the closed door of what may be the most famous address in Washington, D.C., 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I'd like to invite you to the state dinner next week. I'm going to be there, Ms. Reagan? No. Not as, a, not as a butler, Cecil. I'm inviting you as a guest. But the president prefers for me to serve in person. Don't you worry about Ronnie. I'll take care of that. 
This is a scene from the 2013 film The Butler, a historical drama based on the story of Eugene Allen, an African-American man who worked at the White House for 34 years as a waiter, butler, and maitre d', and who died in D.C. in 2010. I recently visited a man in Frederick, Maryland... Okay, this is... let's see... ...who knew the real Gene Allen quite well. Um, these two pictures are my treasures. <laughs> my son with uh, with Gene and myself. Your son's so little, he's only seven months old. Yeah, he's not so little anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Alan DiValerio's son is a little over 30 now, which is just about the age Alan was back in December 1980, when he started working part-time as a White House butler under Gene Allen. He was like one of the nicest guys I've ever known. In the movie, they kind of depict him as being angry, and but, of, you know, those were all made-up scenes. My disappointment was in the White House scenes because... Some of them were inaccurate. Um, For example, when Jane Fonda as Nancy Reagan invites the main character, uh, Cecil Gaines, who was Gene Allen, uh, to um, be a guest at the state dinner, you know, he kind of protests and he says, but the president is going to expect me to, you know, to be serving him, you know, that night. Mitchell, didn't do any serving. He was the coordinator. I mean, even as head butler, he didn't do any serving. Uh, And then they kind of showed him at the state dinner as being uncomfortable, and that was totally not true. Uh, You know, he was really happy to be there. And the same with John Ficklin was also, he was actually the first butler to be invited uh, to a state dinner. Uh, John Ficklin was the maitre d' when I started working there. So when you first got the job, do you remember your first gig and how you felt going into it? Yeah, the first one was probably be a dinner that President... Carter had. He had a series of dinners uh, after he had been defeated, last suppers, kind of. <laughs> and yeah, of course, I was extremely nervous. And, uh, and um, when I got there, I went to the North Gate and they sent me in and I didn't know where to go. So I, I went to the front door, which was a mistake. Fortunately, just to the uh, right of the front North Portico is the usher's office. And so somebody saw me and knew what I was there for and kind of pulled me in and said, you know, we'll explain to you where to go later. So I was nervous, but I was lucky because one of the first things I learned was that White House functions are always overstaffed. So, you know, that was good for me. All I had to do that night was pour wine. I just had to walk around the state dining room and pour wine for anybody who needed it. Uh, That involves a steady hand, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you ever have any mishaps of that sort? Uh, I never did, but I came really close one night. This was a few years later. Um, one of the really great privileges of working there was getting to work upstairs in the family quarters. And we were doing a dinner one night for Helmut Kohl, the Chancellor of Germany, and his wife. And um, that night, the entertainment was Marvin Hamlish, so it was, it was a great night. Yeah. After the entertainment, we were to serve champagne in the yellow overroom. And I came in with a, uh, a tray of four champagne glasses, the fruit cup type glasses, not the long flutes. And um, normally when we're serving, you're standing. So holding a tray uh, level is easy when you're standing up. But the president and Mrs. Reagan and Chancellor Cole and his wife were sitting on the sofa. So I had to bend down to serve them. And, and as I started to bend down, the glasses started to slide off the tray <laughs> I know that I lost about five years off my life in that split second. <laughs> Every time I see those fruit cups now, and if they don't have fruit in them, <laughs> I break out into a sweat. Did you, did you ever overhear anything? Were you ever sort of privy to, like, major business happening or something? When we did the, um, the working luncheons, occasionally you could kind of get the sense of what was going on. 
Uh, for example, one time uh, Pierre Trudeau from Canada was visiting, and you could tell that he and Reagan were not getting along because neither of them cracked a smile during the entire time. But uh, if you're a celebrity watcher, you know, that's the place to be. I mean, you know, it's just incredible. The very first function that Reagan had, um, January 21st, it was a reception and it was just Hollywood people. I was one of the first butlers to go out with a tray and I went into the red room and there was uh, the first four people that I saw were Vince Scully, who was the uh, voice of the uh, L.A. Dodgers, Ray Charles, Lou Rawls. And you probably don't remember, but it was Hugh O'Brien. He was an actor back in that day. And, you know, Johnny Carson was there and Ed McMahon and Bob Hope and, and Frank Sinatra and Jimmy Stewart and Wayne Newton. And it was just an incredible array. I was reading about your experiences with Frank Sinatra. That's so cool. Oh, yeah. Tell that story. Well, every table at a state dinner has a host or a hostess. Uh, he was the host and I was, he was at my table. And he was regaling the women at the table with stories about how he had punched out a reporter and put him in the hospital. And then he called the hospital to find out when the poor fellow was going to get out, not because he was interested in his well-being, but because he wanted to punch him out again and put him back in the hospital. But, uh, you know, I always say that I have to give him credit because he did something that had never been done, to my knowledge, and he requested that the butlers be allowed to come after um, we finished our work to come down to the East Room for the entertainment. And the entertainment, of course, that was Frank Sinatra and Perry Como. So there I was, you know, sitting in the East Room of the White House, listening to two of the great entertainers of their era uh, and getting paid for it on top of it. Yeah, it was a great night. <laughs> uh, but beyond the history, seeing the presidents and the celebrities, it, the people that I worked with were just the, some of the greatest people I've ever known. Uh, you know, they were mostly older uh, black gentlemen that were retired from government work, uh, and they'd been working there for years and years and years. And I was speaking to the um, head of the White House Historical Association, William Seal, and he said, he said, people don't understand, he said, what these people, you know, lived through, what they represented. Because, you know, sometimes they were the first people that the president saw in the morning and the last person they saw, you know, when they went to bed. And, you know, so they they had a very intimate relationship with many presidents. And uh, it's fascinating to me. That's Alan D. Valerio, who worked as a White House butler from 1980 to 1988. He recounts his memories in the book A History of Entertainment in the Modern White House. He also has a piece about John Ficklin in this month's Washingtonian magazine. To learn more, visit our website, metroconnection.org. So needless to say, Alan D. Valerio, Gene Allen, John Ficklin, all these guys saw many, many dinner parties in their time at the White House, all sorts of fancy and often formal events. But our next story is about a dinner party of another kind. It's called The Dinner Party, and it's part of a Los Angeles-based movement that's increasingly taking hold in D.C., Arlington, and Baltimore. At these events, people gather for a very special purpose, to have a conversation about the people they've lost. Aileen Humphreys talked with a local dinner party host as she was preparing recently for an event. Iselin Gambert is a 34-year-old law professor at George Washington University. The cascade of losses in her life started 10 years ago when the man she was dating died without warning. Then her mother, Gree, was diagnosed with advanced breast cancer and died five years later. She also lost her grandmother. Something that I think I 
have struggled with with um, experiencing really significant loss is how after a certain amount of time, society sort of expects you to stop talking about it. That's why when she heard about the dinner party, all these lights went on in her head. This was a chance to be with other people to talk about things that can feel taboo. You know, no matter how supportive people are, it's not the first thing on people's minds if it's been a number of years. And so this space really creates an opportunity to say, you know, we remember these people. We, we love them. We are still interested in talking about them and talking about how they shaped our lives. And that's been really special for me. After losing someone, she says, there can be days that look normal to other people but feel abnormal to you. Right after I had this loss of the person that I was dating 10 years ago, I went to buy, you know, a toothbrush in CVS, and it was just a few days after he died. And I I could have sworn that, you know, anyone that looked at me could tell what I had just experienced. And it was sort of surreal that, that, that people couldn't tell that, you know, I could buy that toothbrush and the person at the cash register didn't sort of stop me and say, oh my God, you've just experienced this really crazy law, this really, you know, surprising and unexpected loss. And the person just let me buy my toothbrush. On a stormy Tuesday night, Eastland is prepping for the third dinner party at her home in Mount Pleasant. The table is set with bright yellow sunflowers, plaid placemats, and cheery serving trays printed with colorful owls and birds. Tonight's dinner is for five people. So what are you making? I'm making um, caramelized tofu. So it's sort of like a Vietnamese-inspired dish. The sauce is kind of like a soy sauce with ginger and garlic, and it's sort of caramelizing around the tofu. It's pretty and it smells good. Lauren Taylor and Jenny Stello arrived together from Tacoma Park, their neighbors and friends. Lauren's partner, Gail, died of breast cancer last year. Jenny's dad is dying of cancer, and she's still reeling, too, from Gail's death and the death of her sister. She's in therapy but says it feels good to be in the company of other people who are grieving. You know, like I just threw a 4th of July party. We, I didn't talk about my dad that day, even though he's present in my mind, just because we're having fun, you know, watching a parade, watching kids play, eating good food. Yeah, so it feels good to have somewhere where um, feeling sad feels okay. Lauren has sought out places to talk about Gail since she died. I went to a grief workshop and... Uh, One of the things we did in the workshop was we made collages and wrote about them. And then you shared your work with the rest of the group. And I was, it had a picture of Gail and then it had a bunch of other symbolic things. And then I was talking about her and everything. And while I was talking, I was crying and people reached for tissues. And unlike every other setting I've been in, they're reaching for tissues for themselves. They weren't like, shoving tissues at me, which is kind of, I know people mean well by it, but it has a feeling of like, don't cry. Now it's time for dinner. You can eat whenever. The last two people ended up not being able to make it, so we're very small. Conversations at the dinner party are confidential, but I can tell you what I talked about. My dad died of brain cancer 16 years ago. This fall, he'll have been gone for half my life. 
I think about him every day, but it wasn't until the dinner party that specifics came flooding back. I talked about the pressure I felt when people said it was so sad he died because he was so wonderful. It made me afraid some imagined scandal would emerge and they wouldn't be sad anymore. I sat there picturing him before one of his radiation treatments, with a metal frame literally screwed into his head so the beams would hit precisely the right spot. But like many at the table, I felt good after dinner. I felt cared about and understood. Lauren Taylor felt better, too. I feel like, um, like I have conversations about this stuff, but not, they're usually briefer and as part of a lot of other stuff. And so it's not like I want to have dinner where we're talking about death and loss and trauma every night. <laughs> and it kind of takes something out of me also. I'm like extra tired, but, um, but I do feel some relief, like lightness, a little bit of lightness. The table has been cleared, the leftovers parsed out. Everyone's gone home for the night. Eastland and I are getting ready to say goodbye, too. It seems a little weird to say I had a lot of fun tonight, but I, I think that in, in a lot of ways I really did, and I think a lot of us said that we felt you know, sort of happier at the end of the meal, and I um, feel like you know, there was a lot that we talked about that was intense and sad and scary or may have been hard to actually get the courage to say out loud, but um, it felt really sort of empowering to be able to actually say it and just to have that shared space with everyone in the room was was really special to me so I'm glad that I was able to host tonight and I'm glad you're able to be there so thanks a lot. I'm Aileen Humphreys. We'll wrap things up today with Beating the Odds, our series about high school students who've persevered and succeeded despite daunting challenges. This week, we'll meet Blossom Ojukwu and find out how she helped her family after her father's actions landed him in prison. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza brings us her story. There are lots of ways to describe 18-year-old Blossom Ojukwu. I think she's vibrant. Her teachers would say she's optimistic. She calls herself tenacious. Blossom came to the U.S. with her parents when she was five years old. We had just begun to establish ourselves in the United States, and things were going great for my family. Blossom says the American dream was not just an ideal. She was living it. Her father was an immigration lawyer, and her mother was a hospital technician. And along with her two younger siblings, they led a very comfortable life. And then one day after school, when she was 12 years old... I was staying after for a chorus rehearsal because I've been I've been singing for a long time. And my mom calls me telling me that there's been a family emergency. I should hurry up and come home. And when I did, and she tells me that my father was taken away that day. And ever since then, I just drew more inward to myself. After hearing something like that, you really have to take it in because it's like your whole world just really changes. Her father was arrested for visa fraud and incarcerated. Overnight, she became one of the nearly three million children in the U.S. who have parents in jail or prison. She suddenly found she was carrying a lot of shame and stigma and secrets, like not being able to tell her friends about visits with her father. I do remember those car rides were 
silent and tense and difficult. And then when we would get there, the people we were around weren't weren't people that we're usually used to being around. And um, seeing him um, was definitely heartbreaking. He was losing a lot of weight. You could see that his faith was getting smaller and I think the the time that really um, got to me when he was in prison and his mother died, my mom had to break the news to him, and that was the first time I've ever seen my father cry. She tried to stay upbeat during those visits. All their conversations centered around being a family again. We would talk about him coming home, and we would talk about when he would come home, and he would tell us how much he loved us and how much he missed us and that he was gonna come home. All of a sudden it felt like the rug was being pulled out from under us, taking the breadwinner in the family. And he, it was hard simply because, especially for me being the oldest, I definitely had to grow up really fast. I believe I was 12 at the time. Relatives she loved and trusted distanced themselves overnight. They didn't see my family the same way after what happened to my father, and they judged a lot. When I was growing up, I had a, I had a, what I thought was a very big family, and it hurt a lot because you expect uncle, auntie, this to always be there for you, and then you learn how cold people can be, and you learn how the world works. Her mother suddenly found herself a single parent, struggling to support three children. They had to pay lawyers and went through their savings. Blossom's carefree childhood became more complicated. Bills weren't being paid. My mom was working all the time. I had to take care of my younger brother and baby sister, cooking, cleaning, helping with bills sometimes if I could. At first, she was optimistic about her father coming home. It wasn't real to me until that summer when you see your friends going on vacation or you see your friends out with their families, it just hit me that I don't have, my father isn't here anymore. There's there's no longer two people in the household and there aren't those little luxuries that you that you didn't pay too much attention to before until they were taken away from you. It wasn't just luxuries like cell phones and cable. During that summer, the bills were just so high. So it was either... We wouldn't have any food, or we had to get rid of our electricity and our water for some time. It was hot. The food was going bad. We couldn't take showers in the house. It was a really rough time. We all slept in um, a bed in our basement because it was the coolest place in the house. They burned candles for light, and even washing up was difficult. We would have to go out the Safeway across the street or the Chick-fil-A to use the bathroom sometimes. She spent most of her time at the library or in church. That was my source of entertainment. Blossom's father was in prison for two years and then was deported to Nigeria. She hasn't seen him, although she's kept in touch. In the last two years, her life has slowly gotten back on track. AP classes and international baccalaureate classes. And I was the class president, founder of the International Club, National Honor Society. I was part of the visual performing arts at my high school music became her escape. Blossom began performing in churches and winning singing competitions. She even got a chance to sing for President Barack Obama when he visited her school. But most importantly, she says, she's made peace with her father and how her life turned out. 
At the end of the day, things happen for a reason. I'm grateful for all the experiences and obstacles that I've been through because in the end, if I do face those things again, I know how exactly to go about them. Today, she wears a bright red dress that matches her big smile. She's just graduated with a 3.9 GPA and can't wait for college. I'm looking forward to the people that I meet and the person I become after. High school shaped me into a great, uh, well, I hope, <laughs> a great person. <laughs> so I want to see what, what college is going to shape me into. As a first-generation immigrant, Blossom worried about whether to follow her dreams of becoming a singer or choose a degree that would lead to more financial security. But with her mother's blessings, she'll study music education and music performance at the University of Maryland this fall on a full scholarship. Blossom says she reminds herself every day to use the life lessons she's learned to help shape her future. I'm Kavita Cardoza. Kristen Sorensen contributed to this report. Partial support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Lauren Oberk, Vita Cardoza, Jared Walker, Aileen Humphreys, and Lindsay Sperber. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our interns are Julie Alderman and Lindsay Sperber. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We have information about all of our music on metroconnection.org. Just click a story for information about its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection or by subscribing to our podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll go down the hatch with our annual show about local food. From mambo sauce to vegan donuts to the lesser-known specialties of Maryland cuisine, we'll bring you a buffet of stories about our region's culinary culture. Oh my goodness, I'm start- I feel like I've reached the waddling stage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.